Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, October 10th, 2020. Right now, it is Wednesday morning, and once again, Truthfids is here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 10 of our conversations. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Truthfids, thank you for being here once again. Hey Bill, thanks for having me as usual. Yeah, today, so today we can go over some of the real hard evidence, um, the Assyrian inscriptions, and this is where it all began, right? The kind of birth of British Israel, where we finally found out that um, the Calarians, Saxons, Scythians, those were the Germanic tribes. And uh, I'm sure before that, there must have been the odd person here and there for our history who may have come to a semi-CI understanding and that Jews were really devils. and But but this is where we first got a kind of mass awakening, you know, m more than just a few handful. But unfortunately, British Israel gradually corrupted it so we can now present all the evidence and remove all these corruptions. Uh, so going over the inscriptions, the archaeology, and this is something that all whites should know. Uh, that really should be taught at school. Unfortunately, it's not. And uh, the hope is that if 100 proofs does spread and CI spreads, that people will become aware of all this. Right, Bill? Right, absolutely. And and British Israel, even though they did a lot of good things, they made all of these um, non-academic embellishments to the narrative that, that don't belong, that have to be removed. Those non-academic embellishments that, that are, are not based on scholarship, that are mere conjecture and, and quite often mere whimsy, that these things are, are, are used against us rather effectively to undermine this truth. And they have to be removed. They have to be removed from Christian identity discourse altogether. If it can't be established in scripture or in ancient inscriptions or ancient historical works, then it does not belong at all. So this is a summary of the evidence, not only that Israelites were white, the circumstances overall of this evidence will show that the Israelites had to be white, or, or what we consider white, Aryan, um, Indo-European, however you want to phrase it. Um, European, okay. The circumstances will prove that. But this is also evidence from Assyrian inscriptions, which proves that the accounts of the, the Bible are true, and that we can generally rely on the historical narrative of scripture, because it is true, and it is supported by ancient history and by these inscriptions. When ancient Hebrews wrote the Bible, and this is important, and this is important in, in the context of the development of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, when they wrote these books that we now consider the Bible, they had no idea that 
2,000, 3,000, or 3,500 years later, we would be able to dig rocks out of the ground that tell basically the same story. So the scriptures must be true for that reason, because when we dug these rocks out of the ground, the rocks told the same story. The clay tablets, the stone inscriptions told the same story once they were translated, deciphered, and translated. So on that note, there have been many thousands of Mesopotamian inscriptions which have been discovered since the expansion of the British Empire helped to open the Near East to European archaeologists in the 19th century. While not all of them have even yet been deciphered, translations of thousands of such inscriptions have been made, and many volumes of those translations have been published. One significant source I have found for many of these is the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago from which I have downloaded hundreds of PDF books and translations of ancient inscriptions. Now, I will include a link to that with the notes to this podcast so that other people can download the same inscriptions, right? Or books of inscriptions. But for most people, it is impossible to read through hundreds of books especially on a computer screen. And even I have read only a portion of what I have obtained there. However, there is one book, and, and this book I believe every serious Bible student should have on a shelf, if they can, because it's, it's expensive. There is one book which was first published in 1950. And it was published in its third edition in 1969. And in this book, academic translations of many of the Assyrian, Hittite, Egyptian, Babylonian, and other inscriptions from the Near East, which should be of interest to students of scripture, have been reproduced. That book is Ancient Near Eastern Texts Relating to the Old Testament, that's the title. It was edited by James B. Pritchard, and it was published by Princeton University Press. It is still available from certain sources on the internet, such as Amazon.com. Um, used copies of it can be purchased, which aren't as expensive, at Amazon, at A-Books, and places like that. We also have a PDF copy of this book, but the PDF copy contains some OCR errors, um, errors in the optical character recognition process. And therefore, the PDF is not entirely reliable. In, in other words, a lot of times like an RN sequence in a word can be interpreted as an M. And sometimes in a letter H can be interpreted as a numeral four in, in, the, in, in the OCR process. So there's some editing that would have been recommended there, but whoever 
scanned the PDF that we have, which is the only PDF of the work that I found, they didn't bother to go into the text to correct it. That process might take months because it's a very long book with very small print. So the PDF isn't entirely reliable. When I take a citation and cut and paste it from the PDF, I sit and I compare it to the paper book, which is still faster than retyping it, right? So these inscriptions, because they are of interest to students of scripture, or at least they should be of interest, this book contains all of the significant inscriptions that had been discovered up to the time of its publication, which mention the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities of ancient Israel. Many of these inscriptions confirm accounts which are given in the historical books of the Bible. And for the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, especially in the books which we know as Second Kings and Second Chronicles. But they also help, and I'm going to give an example here, they also help corroborate many things which we may read in early Greek histories. For example, I will read a paragraph from George Rawlinson's translation of Herodotus from the histories from book seven, paragraph 64, where he described the armies commanded by Xerxes in that section of his book. And, and he said, the sake or skiffs were clad in trousers and had on their heads tall, stiff caps rising to a point. They bore the bow of their country and the dagger, besides which they carried the battle axe or sagaris. They were in truth Amergian Scythians, but the Persians called them sake, since that is the name which they give to all Scythians, and that is the name that they carried with them into Europe in later history. Variations of that name, Sake, which gives birth to the word Saxons. Now from a page, from page 316 of Ancient Near Eastern Texts, in a translation of an inscription of Xerxes, the Persian king who had invaded Greece and who was defeated about 480 AD, where he boasted of the countries and tribes over which he ruled. And actually the Persian War lasted from the, the fighting part of the Persian War. Let me put it that way, because the Persian War never really ended against the Greeks. But the fighting part lasted from 490 BC and the Battle of Marathon to probably about 479 or 478 BC and the defeats of the Persians at the Battle of Plataea and the Battle of Mycalae, which were not long after the famous Battle of Salamis, where the entire Persian navy was sunk and Xerxes decided to go home 
but he left a quarter of his army under one of his generals, who, who was later defeated at Michael A. and Plataia and other places. And, and I'm digressing, right? So, this inscription of Xerxes. Thus speaks King Xerxes. These are the countries, in addition to Persia, over which I am king under the shadow of Ahura Mazda, the god of the Persians at that time, over which I hold sway, which are bringing their tribute to me, whatever is commanded them by me, that they do and they abide by my laws. Media, Elam, Arachosia, Urartu, Urartu is in Persian, the Persian version of the inscriptions. It's Armenia, Drangiana, Parthia, Haria or Aria, Bactria, Sogdia, Coramisia, or I'm sorry, Chorasmia, Babylonia, Assyria, Sadagidia, Sardis, Egypt. The Ionians who live on the Salty Sea and those who live beyond the Salty Sea, meaning on the other shore. And by Salty Sea here, it certainly refers to the Aegean Sea at the west of Anatolia. Maka, Arabia, Gandhara, India, Cappadocia, Dayan, the Amurgian Chimerians, now, these, trans these inscriptions were very often bilingual or trilingual. They would be published in Akkadian, which was the lingua franca and the language of Assyria, but they would also be published in Persian, in Elamite, or even in Aramaic in, in a somewhat later time. The Babylonians made their primary inscriptions in Aramaic, but many of them were also in Akkadian or, or in Persian or in Elamite. So where Xerxes' inscriptions mention Amurgian Chimerians, a corresponding label by Herodotus is Amurgian Scythians in Book 7, Paragraph 64 of the Histories. To finish the inscription, the, our paragraph from the inscription, the Amurgian Chimerians, the Chimerians wearing pointed caps, the Skudra, the Akupish, Libya, Baneshu, by whom it is believed the Carians were meant in southwestern Anatolia, and Kush, Kush being the Hebrew word for the people the Greeks had, had labeled as Ethiopians. So here we see Herodotus, his description of the Scythians, and the identity of the people whom the Greeks called Scythians with people whom the Assyrians called Chimerians is all corroborated in Assyrian inscriptions, as well as the assertion that the Chimerians originated in the Near East. Just a few hundred years later, they were in Central Europe in 
what we know now as Germany, and they were fighting against the Romans. And they never left Germany, right? Not, not until the colonial period, <laughs> 1,500 years after that. So here it may be argued that the Assyrian word Chimerian is from the word Gimiri and not from Khamri. In answer to that, I wrote the following note in a 2015 podcast where Bertrand Compare had asserted that the word Gimiri means the tribes. And I said that this was E. Raymond Capp's position. However, I have not yet been able to establish that Gimiri simply means, quote unquote, the tribes. Others had made that assertion before capped. Checking the Assyrian Dictionary of the Oriental Institute. Now, I had that posted at Christagenia, and the link will also be included with this podcast, the link to that PDF copy of that dictionary. Checking the Assyrian Dictionary of the Oriental Institute, compiled at the University of Chicago, it can be verified that the letters G and K were often interchanged in Assyrian, and the word Gamiri could easily have been a permutation of the word Khamri. We would argue, in any event, that the true source of the word, the Greek word Kimroi, was actually Khamri, the Assyrian form of Amri. Sir Henry Rawlinson is often said, I haven't yet found the source of the citation, but he is often said to have made the connection of the Gamiri to the Khamri, and many academic historians have followed. The inscription from ancient Near Eastern texts explains that in the Persian and Elamite versions, the Chimerians are called Sakans or Saka. It also seems that all of the Assyrian references to Gemiri are from the time of Esarhaddon and Ashurbanipal which is from 680 BC and later, where the references to Khamri end with the time of Sargon, which is about 720 BC, the time of Sargon II. The Gemiri appear in those same inscriptions in the places in which the Khamri, or Israelites, were settled by the Assyrians. And these are the Scythians which whom the Persians had fought in the 6th century BC. So, so is that um, K and G? Is that because there was that guttural, um, you know, that the Hebrews sometimes added onto C's and K's? And that way uh, the Assyrians might use a G instead? Yes, we're not accustomed to the guttural. And, and that's because basically the King James Version of Scripture, if it represents the guttural, it only represents it with the letter H, where if you examine, say, the Hebrew lexicon in Strong's Concordance, 
he will often include a guttural transliteration, which is the way that these words have been had been pronounced in the ancient world, where, say, ham is cam, C-H-A-M, right? And, and there's a lot of examples of that. In Yeah, in Gaelic, um, this, this C-H or the K can be like a guttural. So um, makara would be makara. So you can easily hear if somebody heard that, they'd go, oh, that must be a G, right? Right. And, and in German also, it's German has more guttural pronunciations of the um, the ch or the or the ck that that we may find in English. But the Greeks also didn't do very well with the guttural and and didn't really have a letter H at all. They had the shape right, but they used it for the eta and not for the the breathing H that we have, the H sound, right? The Greeks represented that breathing sound at the beginning of words that started with a vowel with what, what we would call an apostrophe or a reverse apostrophe. So if a word began with a vowel and it was marked with a reverse apostrophe, it had a smooth sound like... Adam, but if it began with an apostrophe, it had a rough breathing sound on, on the front of the vowel, like ham. So they're not the best examples because Adam and ham aren't really Greek words, but I just want to get the point across. And I think I mentioned that actually here in, in, in my notes a little later on. So these that these gemiri appear in those same inscriptions in in the places in which the Qumri or Israelites were settled by the Assyrians, and these are the Scythians with whom the Persians had fought in in the sixth century BC under Cyrus the Great. Flavius Josephus attests that in his time. They are the ten tribes who were an innumerable multitude beyond the Euphrates River. The only such multitude beyond the Euphrates River at this time and through the centuries leading up to the time of Josephus were the Proto-Germanic Scythians. Now, I'm, I'm going to offer, and, and this is going to take quite some time, I'm going to offer some biblical history which is corroborated in Assyrian inscriptions. And the circumstances of all of this prove beyond doubt that these biblical Israelites were basically white people. They couldn't have been black or yellow or brown or anything else. And, and we'll see that as we proceed. Before we begin this discussion, it must be noted that the perspective on events by one nation are always going to differ where they are also recorded by other nations, and especially by opposing nations. If um, post-World War II national socialists could have written 
a history of the Second World War without any interference from the Anglo-American coalition and its allies, that history would look very, very different than any of the histories which we've gotten in, in our Anglo-American alliance, right? It, it, the German, the National Socialist German view of the events and causes of the war would be starkly different. That doesn't mean they wouldn't be true. It's just a matter of perspective. And it, it said that history is written by the, by the victors. The truth is that the perspective remembered in history is almost always the perspective of those who had, had prevailed and won in, in economic wars, in, in military wars. That, that's just the way it's always been. So there was a Syrian king of Damascus, Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, who is known from 2 Kings chapters 8 through 12 which is also the time of the prophet Elijah, the time of Ahab and Jezebel, an inscription bearing the name of Ben-Hadad of Damascus was found in an ancient cemetery near Aleppo in northern Syria, which was dedicated to his lord Melkart, a Syrian idol. However, Hazael and Ben-Hadad are also mentioned in other inscriptions. And, and Melkart was also the, an idol of the Phoenicians of Carthage. So there are um, cultural connections to the Carthaginians in Northern Africa, which cannot be denied. But Assyrians were never Negroes, and, and neither were the Carthaginians. The Assyrian king Shalmaneser, mentioned in 2 Kings chapters 17 and 18, is known to archaeologists as Shalmaneser V, and he ruled in Assyria near the middle of the 8th century BC, from about 740-something BC down to 722 BC. Usually the Bible does not tell us much of what is happening outside of its own immediate concern, which is the events surrounding the Israelite capital cities of Samaria and Jerusalem. But by the middle of the 9th century BC, the time of Elijah, the Assyrians are already making conquests of the cities of the Syrians, Hittites, and others to the north of Israel. And they had placed Hamath, Damascus, Biblos, Sidon, and Tyre under tribute. All of these things are known from ancient Assyrian inscriptions. From a basalt statue, from the reign of Shalmanasar III, and he was earlier than the Shalmanasar mentioned in 2 Kings 17 and 18, of course, being Shalmaneser III, who presumably ruled from about 854 to 828 BC, which is consistent with the time of the rule of Ahab, 
and the anointing of King Hazael as of Hazael as king of Damascus in the days of Elijah, we had the following. This is from an inscription of Salmanasar three. I defeated Hadad Ezer of Damascus together with twelve princes, his allies. I stretched upon the ground twenty thousand and nine hundred of his strong warriors, like Subi. The meaning of Subi is unknown. <laughs> I'm sorry. That when the Assyriologists come across the, a word which is unknown, they leave it untranslated in the inscriptions. Some words are unknown simply because their meaning is unknown simply because they don't appear often enough in the inscriptions to figure out what it means or because they're not used in any bilingual or trilingual inscriptions to see what the meaning is from the corresponding word in another language, which we do know, right? So, the remnants of his troops I pushed into the Orantes River, and they dispersed to save their lives. Hadadezer himself perished. Hazael, a commoner, seized the throne, called up a numerous army, and rose against me. I fought with him and defeated him, taking the chariots of his camp. He disappeared to save his life. I marched as far as Damascus, his royal residence, and cut down his gardens. So in the Bible, Yahweh, the God of Israel, commands Elijah the prophet to go to Damascus and anoint Haziel king. But in the Assyrian inscriptions, we see that Haziel did become king, but from a totally different perspective, where they just said that Haziel, a commoner, seized the throne. So the history is corroborated, but it's two different perspectives. And we have to understand that the Assyrians really didn't have inside information as to how Haziel became king, but we find that in the scripture. Concerning the coasts of Phoenicia, Tyre, and the other Phoenician cities such as Arvad, Sidon, and Byblos, they were under tribute to Assyria as early as the time of Ashurbanipal II, who ruled from 883 to 815, um, to 859 BC. So that's early in the 9th century BC. That's from ancient Near Eastern texts, page 276. There are inscriptions explaining that. I won't repeat which is witnessed in multiple inscriptions. Ancient Near Eastern texts, pages 280 and 281. Later, Adad Nerari III and Tiglath III also had Tyre and Sidon under tribute. Ancient Near Eastern texts, pages 281 and 282. Sennacherib, 
who ruled from 704 to 681 BC, also had Tyre and Sidon under tribute. And Tyre in the Assyrian inscriptions is called Ushu. Ushu was the Assyrian name for the mainland part of the city Tyre. Now, Esarhaddon, who ruled Assyria from 680 to 669 BC, was still moving alien peoples into the ancient land of Israel and evidently also removing Israelites. And we see references to that in Isaiah chapter 7 and in Ezra chapter 4. The king of Tyre made a treaty with him and was also rewarded rule over Philistia, ancient Near Eastern texts, page 533. This treaty was broken in the reign of Esarhaddon's successor, Ashurbanipal, who ruled Assyria from 668 to 633 BC. Now, Ashurbanipal was the last significant Assyrian ruler. Here, from ancient Near Eastern texts, page 295, is part of the text from an inscription of that king, Ashurbanipal. In my third campaign, I marched against Baal, king of Tyre, who lives on an island amidst the sea, because he did not heed my royal order, did not listen to my personal commands. I surrounded him with redoubts, seized his communications, literally roads, on sea and land. I thus intercepted and made scarce their food supply and forced them to submit to my yoke. He brought his own daughter and the daughters of his brothers before me to do menial services. At the same time, and that might be a euphemism, at the same time he brought his son, Yahimilki, and that name Yahimilki begins in I-A-H, would be the first half of the name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. He brought his son, Yahimilki, who had not yet crossed the sea to greet me as my slave. I received from him his daughter and the daughters of his brothers with their great dowries. I had mercy upon him and returned to him the son, the offspring of his loins. So here, all these daughters of these conquered princes and, and kings of these cities were becoming concubines to the Assyrian king. Yakinlu, king of Arvad, living also on an island, who had not submitted to any of the kings of my family, did now submit to my yoke and brought his daughter with a great dowry to Nineveh to do menial services. And he kissed my feet. And I believe that menial services reference is actually a euphemism for something that we probably should not discuss here. It is evident that in many ancient inscriptions that while Israel and Judah were divided in the days of Solomon, over the subsequent, or after the days of Solomon, I should say, over the 
subsequent centuries, many other fractures of Israel had taken place. Gaza and Lachish had broken off and asserted their independence at diverse times. Tyre and Sidon, as, along with much of Phoenicia, had become completely independent, and Israel was actually split into several pieces, while the biblical narrative focuses only on Samaria. But the inscriptions give us glimpses and even more elaborate descriptions in some places of the larger political picture. So, Another, so was Solomon about 950 BC? Yes, that, that's a good estimation, 950 BC. And um, if he had Tyre, Sidon, uh, Biblios on the tribute, would that mean generally the territory of Asher would be, which, you know, which was on the coast where Tyre and Sidon were in, that generally Asher would be under tribute as well? Or? Well, yes, many of those people would be of the tribe of Asher. Most of them would be of the tribe of Asher and perhaps other northern tribes of Israel, um, Naphtali and Zebulun, Dan and Gad would be under tribute. But the Assyrians are calling these places by the names of the cities and not by the names of the tribes that had dwelt in those cities. They rarely mention the tribes or any particular tribe in the Assyrian inscriptions. There is one mention of Naphtali, which is only apparent. It's not explicit. And I will explain that when we get to it. So from, from the biblical perspective, we really only see what's going on in Samaria, connected with the kings of Samaria, which are the kings of the northern ten tribes. But there were other political divisions which really are not explained, even in the scant and concise records in the books of Kings and Chronicles. Another important inscription which verifies biblical history is the Moabite stone. And it happens to be from this very same period, right? This stone contains an inscription by King Mesha, the king of Moab, in the time of Ahab and Jezebel. And we see this in 2 Kings chapter 3. It was discovered intact in 1868, and it was taken to the Louvre in Paris, France, the famous art museum in France, right? The following text is from ancient Near Eastern texts, pages 320 and 321, and I'm only going to read the first two paragraphs of the inscription. I am Mesha, the son of Kamash. Now, Kamash is the ancient god of the Moabites, right? I am Mesha, son of Kamash, king of Moab, the Dibonite. My father had reigned over Moab 30 years, and I reigned after my father, who made this place, this high place for Kamash in Karho. Karho, that's that, it, even in the Moabite language, that Q-A-R would be that care or kir that we see the Phoenicians and Hebrews use to describe a city, right? 
So his father, even though he calls himself the son of Kamash, that's allegorical. His father, he's called a Dibonite after his father, who had been the king of Moab for 30 years before him, who made this high place for Kamash in Karho, because he saved me from all the kings and caused me to triumph over all my adversaries. So I'm sorry, Mesha made the high place for Kamash as, as gratitude because he believed that this god, this idol, had given him this victory. Now the important part, and there's two important parts here. As for Omri, king of Israel, he humbled Moab many years for Kamash was angry at his land. So the king of Moab is saying that Amri, the king of Israel, was able to rule over Moab because the god of the Moabites was mad at the Moabites. <laughs> and his son followed him, and he also said, I will humble Moab. In my time he spoke thus, but I have triumphed over him and over his house while Israel has perished forever. Amri had, and that's really a statement of hope, right? That they, they wouldn't prevail over Moab again. Amri had occupied the land of Medaba, and Israel had dwelt there in his time and half the time of his son Ahab, 40 years. But Kamash dwelt there in my time. In other words, when Moab reasserts its rule, the god of Moab, the god of the Moabites, is ruling there and dwelling there, right, in the land. And I built Balmion, another word familiar from scripture, making a reservoir in it, and I built Karyaten. Now the men of Gad had always dwelt in the land of Adaroth, the tribe of Gad. And the king of Israel had built Adaroth for them. But I fought against the town and took it and slew all of the people of the town as satiation for Kamash and Moab. In other words, killing all of the Israelites in that town. What would, and, and the word satiation can also mean intoxication. What would satiate his god, Kamash, right? And I brought back from there Arel, its chieftain, dragging him before Kamash in Kerioth. And I settled there, men of Sharon and men of Maharith. And Kamash said to me, go, take Nebo from Israel. So I went by night and fought against it from the break of dawn until noon, another town west I'm sorry, east of the Jordan, right? Taking it and slaying all, 7,000 men, boys, women, girls, and maidservants, for I had devoted them to destruction for the god Ashtar Kamash. So we see that word Ishtar or Ashtoreth in this Moabite inscription. And evidently as a consort of Kamash. That's how I'm interpreting this. And I took from there the, and then there's a space, an illegible word, the blank of Yahweh, 
dragging them before Kamash. And the king of Israel had built Jahaz, and he dwelt there while he was fighting against me. But Kamash drove him out from before me. And I took from Moab 200 men, all first-class warriors, and set them against Jahaz, and took it in order to attach it to the district of Diban. So, the Moabites had been subjected to Israel by King David, as it is related in 2 Samuel chapter 8, and Israel ruled over them all that time. In the time of King Ahab, in the period of the divided kingdom, Moab was subject to Israel rather than to Judah. It is reported in 2 Kings chapter 1 that Moab revolted after the death of Ahab. However, there it only says, then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. The Moabite stone obviously tells us the extent of that revolt from the Moabite point of view. Later, Moab was listed as being a tributary to the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, who ruled from 744 to 727 BC, and again to Sargon II, who ruled from 721 to 705 BC. It was still a tributary in the reign of Esarhaddon from 680 to 669 BC and of Ashurbanipal from 668 to 633. And that can all be seen in ancient Near Eastern texts on pages 291, 294, and 298. So, now that, so in reality, it was um, because our ancestors, the Israelites, rebelled against Yahweh, and that's why Moab was successful, right? He's just, that king's just got it from the wrong perspective. Well, right, exactly. But that's the perspective of the en enemy, and he's going to give the credit to his God when he prevails. And None sorry, of these... would, the, would the Moabites, <clears throat> would they have been white at this point, or can we just, we just don't know? Well, well the Moabites were almost certainly um, white in appearance at this point, and that was one reason why circumcision was imposed upon the children of Israel, so they would, they would not mix with these other races who were apparently white, but were all tainted with the blood of the Canaanites who were accursed. That's why Israel was circumcised. And, and that's why the circumcision is important to understand. That circumcision helped preserve this particular race, which Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of our scriptures, wanted preserved. Even though it's, it, it's, um, seen as being cruel. And, and I believe that, yeah, circumcision, I would agree, is pretty cruel to um, cut off a portion of your penis, but it still functions. And the penis still does everything it's supposed to do, while at the same time, it's cruel enough that anybody of another race would not simply and casually circumcise themselves so that they could pretend to be you. The, the circumstances would have to be much more drastic than that. In the ancient world, apparently white people and, and white nations would 
only be distinguished generally from their clothing, from their mode of dress. This is a place in scripture where the Midianites are identified by their earrings. So it, it's easy to put on the uniform of a member of an opposing army in order to infiltrate that army as long as you could speak their language. But it's another thing entirely to be willing to circumcise yourself just to infiltrate the opposing army, right? Circumcision is um, cruel and it's drastic, but it preserved the, the race apart from all of the surrounding peoples through that entire period of Old Testament history, which is perhaps a thousand years. Okay. That's another digression, but that's okay. And I think it's an important one to get that explanation across because um, today, and we're not even going to get into the farce that's being foisted upon white Christians by Jewish doctors under the guise of modern medicine. But today, most white Christians in Europe, I think, are not circumcised, right? It, is that true? That they don't really practice circumcision there? No, no, not at all, uh, unless, you know, there's a medical reason. It, it seems that as soon as the Israelites, any Israelite tribes migrated away from Palestine, that's the first thing they dropped was that circumcision. I don't blame them. But in Palestine, it preserved the race apart from all of the others. And it wasn't something that somebody could lightly mimic, right? On the other hand, Flavius Josephus attested that except for the circumcision, you wouldn't be able to tell the Judeans apart from the Greeks. So, the next significant events we should discuss here are the interactions between Ahab and the Assyrians. And then the Assyrian records of the conquest of Samaria. In the earlier Assyrian inscriptions, because the tribe of the Amorites had dominated the region which lay in between Assyria and Palestine, which is the northern Arabian desert, right? Because of that, the Assyrians simply referred to the people of the west and of Palestine as Amuru. Amuru was their word for the Amorites. But once the Assyrians began their own political expansion into the area, then they also began to identify the tribes of the people who dwelt in Palestine more precisely. They weren't simply Amuru anymore. They started to distinguish between um, Israelites and, and Amorites and Syrians and so forth. By the Greeks, all of these people were called Syrians. And at least three times in his histories, Herodotus had referred to the people of Judah, to the Judeans, as the Syrians of Palestine. Now, this is a point I had wanted to save for later in this series. But in Cappadocia, which is in Anatolia, but now it's part of modern eastern Turkey. 
There were a people referred to by the Greeks as white Syrians. And Strabo, the geographer, Strabo of Cappadocia, writing before 25 AD, wondered at that saying, as if there were any black ones. Now, Strabo was a Greek, right? And attested that there were no black Syrians with that statement. In other words, all of these people were white. And if there were no black Syrians, as Strabo attested, then there were no black Israelites because the Greeks also referred to them, the early Greeks also referred to them as Syrians. And you cannot really, once you understand scripture, and once you read these inscriptions, you cannot really separate Syrian history from Israelite history. And you cannot separate Syrians from Israelites. In the later Assyrian inscriptions, those of the era of the Assyrian invasions of Palestine, one can see that the land of Amuru is greatly reduced from its former size, which certainly establishes the biblical assertions that the Israelites had displaced the Amorites and others of the Canaanite tribes which once inhabited the land. The Amuru and their land is mentioned in an inscription of Tiglath Pileser I, who presumably ruled Assyria from 1114 to 1076 BC, a time not long before that of Saul and David, where the exact extent of what he considered the country of Amuru to be is unclear. However, it is described as having bordered the Mediterranean Sea. And that's in ancient Near Eastern texts, page 275. In an inscription of Asher Nasir Pal, who ruled from 883 to 859 BC, the Amuru are mentioned in a list of tributaries, which included Tyre, Sidon, Byblos, Arvad, and, the, uh, and other cities, which are therefore distinguished from those of the Amorites. So they're not Amorites any longer. That's ancient Near Eastern texts, page 276. Therefore, the biblical assertion that the children of Israel displaced the Amorites and other tribes of the Canaanites certainly seems to be accurate, even if Assyrian and Egyptian inscriptions concerning the land of Amuru dating from the second millennium BC do not distinguish the Amorites who were originally the principal tribe of the land from the Hebrew Israelites who later occupied much of the same land. The Amarna letters do describe some of the Hebrew invasions of the Levant in the 14th century BC. So the Hebrews are not Canaanites but sometimes in the early years, the surrounding nation did not distinguish them. The outsiders did not distinguish them. Just like most Americans wouldn't really understand the differences between the Quebecois, the, the Quebec, the French in Quebec, 
and the English who, who surround them in, in the provinces outside of Quebec, right? And there's also a lot of French in, in New Brunswick. But yeah, New they Brunswick just call them is Canadians, right? It's just right. Canadians. Exactly. To an American, they're just all Canadians. And and I didn't really understand how um different the people of Quebec were from the people of Ontario and, and the other Atlantic provinces until I actually spent three weeks there in 1989 and found that, that they didn't even like each other, right? They, they really despise each other. And, and when you speak English in Quebec, outside of Montreal, in northern Quebec, when you speak English, you're immediately scorned unless they realize that you're an American. If you're an American, you're okay, and they like you. But if you're an Englishman <laughs> from Ontario, they don't like you. They, ha they have um, enmity towards you. I, I mean, that, that, but to an American, they're all Canadians, unless you really know, unless you've actually been there. Well, it's the same thing in, in the ancient world. If you're an Assyrian, yeah, they're all Amorites. But if you're, you're inside of Palestine, you're going to have a totally different perspective. So yeah, and, and also if these Israelites were black, they would mention it, right? The, these black people, but but they don't. <laughs> There's no, no mention ever in no, any of these inscriptions. As we proceed here, we're going to see how how integrated the history of Israel is with the history of of what the Greeks called Syria. And and if Strabo says there are no black Syrians, well then the Israelites must have been white. Uh, I, okay, we'll just keep reading. The first mention of an Israelite in the Assyrian inscription seems to be that of King Ahab. Ahab the Israelite, in an inscription of Shalmaneser III, who presumably ruled Assyria from 858 to 824 BC. And when I say presumably, that means that these chronologies are never perfect. They could be off by two, three years, four years, and, and, or, or, or maybe a little longer in some cases. But they're roughly accurate. They are roughly accurate. So Ahab was said to have provided 10,000 foot soldiers to a coalition army from mostly Syrian cities, which fought against the Assyrians. That's on page 279 of ancient Near Eastern texts. But that account is not found in our scriptures. The earliest concern over the expansion of Assyria, which is recorded in scripture, seems to be that of the prophet Jonah whose ministry was no later than the early years of Jeroboam II, who was the king of Israel from perhaps 793 to 752 BC. So Jeroboam had to date to no later than, he may have been earlier than Jeroboam II, but he was no later than the early years of Jeroboam II. And this dating of Jonah is established in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, where it says, speaking of Jeroboam too, that he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the Sea of the Plain, according to the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
which he spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet which was of Gath-hefer. So Jonah had to be from before that time and in the reign of Jeroboam too. Solomon was said to have first taken Hamath and to have built cities in Hamath in 2 Chronicles chapter 8. Hamath is nearly 120 miles north of Damascus. For the same coalition to which Ahab had contributed soldiers, the Assyrian inscriptions say that the city of Hamath had also contributed 10,000 soldiers. So there is clearly a struggle between Israel and Assyria for control of the areas to the north of Palestine, which we can determine from both the Bible and the Assyrian inscriptions. In the Assyrian inscriptions, which follow that time, the name Israel doesn't appear again. The name Israel is always Huamri or Humria, which should be pronounced in our tongue as Khumri. And that the H is actually a KH sound is evident in many Assyrian place names. Elsewhere in the Assyrian inscriptions, we see Hilaku for Kalikia. It begins with an H in Assyrian, but it's a K in Greek, in Roman. It's a K sound in Roman. It's the hard letter C. It's, it's um, the hef probably in Hebrew, which would be pronounced with a hard CH. The biblical river Habor in modern times is spelled K-H-A-B-O-R, Kabor because that's what it is in the guttural languages of Mesopotamia. The Habor in the Bible is Kabor. Hilaku in the Assyrian inscriptions is Kilikia. So, from another much later inscription of Shalmanesar III, we see the tribute of Jehu, son of Amri, or Humri. I received from him silver, gold, a golden saplu bowl. Saplu is one of those words that we don't know the meaning of. A golden vase with pointed bottom, golden tumblers, golden buckets, tin, a staff for a king, and wooden perutu. And nobody knows what Purutu means as of the time of this publication, 1969. That's from Ancient Near Eastern Texts, page 281. The Bible does not mention this tribute, which Jehu had made to the Assyrians. The same inscription states that Tyre and Sidon were also under tribute to Assyria at this time, during which Assyria was frequently at war with the various kings of cities in Syria. An inscription of Adad-Nerari III, who presumably ruled Assyria from 810 to 783 BC, 
Israel is listed among the states which became tributary to Assyria upon an expedition of this king to Palestine. Here is part of a longer list of tributaries provided in the inscription. From the banks of the Euphrates, the country of the Hittites, Amuru country in its full extent, Tyre, Sidon, Israel, Edom, Palestine, or Palastu, as far as the shore of the great sea of the setting sun, I made them all submit to my feet, imposing upon them tribute. That's ancient Near Eastern text, page 281. Neither is this tribute mentioned in our scriptures, which was probably in the reign of either Jehoash or early in that of Jeroboam II. In the time of Jehoahaz, who preceded this Jehoash as king of Israel, it is said in scripture that Israel was oppressed by the Syrians for his entire reign. That's 2 Kings chapter 13. But Damascus was also taken by Adad-Nerari III in this same campaign. Tiglath-Pilaster III is mentioned in 2 Kings chapters 15 and 16. He ruled Assyria from 744 to 727 BC. From an inscription of this king, which was translated by D.D. Luckenbill, Donald David Luckenbill, we read, The towns of the upper sea I brought under my rule. Six officers of mine I installed as governors over them. The town of Rashpuna, which is situated on the coast of the upper sea. The towns, and then there's only half a name, Knight, N-I-T-E, so some town, its English spelling ends in those letters. Gaza, Abalaka, which are adjacent to Israel, or Bithumria and the wide land of Naphtali. Now, the word Naphtali is assumed there because this inscription is fragmented, and only the end of the word for Naphtali is legible in the inscription, but not the entire word. However, it may be the only viable reading which fits the context. And the, the wide land of Naphtali, in its entire extent, I united with Assyria. Now, that reading seems to be true because in any event, this inscription corresponds with and corroborates the text of 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29, where it said that Naphtali was taken to Assyria. And what we have just witnessed from Assyrian inscriptions, if we follow along, is that the Assyrian king, Adad-Nerari III, who ruled from 810 to 783 BC, went on a long military campaign with a great army and subjected under tribute Syria and Israel and all the nations of the Levant, then, over 40 years later, Tiglath-Pileser III 
once again gathered a large army and went out and conquered these same places. We are not told in these surviving inscriptions exactly why they had to be subjected anew to the Assyrians, but it is obvious that this is what had occurred. However, we do have that answer in our Bibles because corresponding roughly with the 40 plus years between these two Assyrian kings is the rule of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. Jeroboam II regained all of these lands from the Assyrians and placed them back under the control of Israel. That is why Tiglath-Pileser III had to launch a new campaign and regain Assyrian dominion right around the time that Jeroboam II had died. Here is the biblical account from 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 29. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. Two kings named Joash, one in Judah, one in Israel. And reigned forty and one years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He departed not from all the sins of another Jeroboam, Jeroboam one, Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain. According to the word of Yahweh God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai the prophet, which was of Gath-Hefer. For Yahweh saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And Yahweh said, not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah, for Israel. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel. And Zechariah his son reigned in his stead. So Damascus and Hamath, cities known to the Syrian, to the Greeks, cities which were known to the Greeks as Syrian cities, had belonged to Israel from the time of King David and for 200 years up to their first Assyrian conquest. Adad Narari III conquered the land under a wicked Israelite king of Judah, and then Jeroboam II ascended and to the throne in Samaria and recovered that land for Israel. A few decades later, Tiglath-Pileser III launched a new campaign and gained it back for Assyria and 
once this chronology is all put together and the Assyrian inscriptions, which explain these things, are put together with the biblical account, we realize that here is the struggle for what was then, at that time, basically the center of what we may call Western civilization. The Bible is a history book, even though it is recorded from what can be considered a religious perspective. And there is no doubt about it once it is studied from the proper historical perspective. It's a history book, and the actors in that history can be identified. I don't know if you have anything to say to all that. Putting the world in perspective, while all of this is going on, while all of this is transpiring, at the same time, the Ionian Greeks were conquering the Phoenician cities of Western Anatolia and gained hegemony over Miletus and the rest of Caria. Rome, the so-called eternal city, is not even on the maps. The traditional founding of Rome is 753 BC. So the city at this time is just now being founded at the time of Tiglath Pilaster III. Where did the Romans come from? They came from Troy, from the east, according to all of their own legends and those of the Greeks. The Trojans, in turn, were said to have come from the Mediterranean islands. All, but where did they come from, right? All of Italy was settled from the east by the Minoans, who were Phoenicians, by the Lydians, by the Trojans, by the Greeks. After Rome was founded, according to Livy, the famous historian of Rome, they sent men to Athens to study the laws of Solon, which formed the basis of the first Roman laws. Carthage, according to the reckoning of Josephus from the now lost chronicles of ancient Tyre, which had at one time been translated by Menander of Ephesus, Carthage is only about 100 years old at this same time, having been founded about 850 B.C. Where did the Carthaginians come from? They came from Tyre, from the east, according to all of the historians of the Levant and of the Greeks. At this time, the coasts of Spain and the Isles of Britain were known rather vaguely only as Phoenician outposts. The Phocians, who were Ionian Greeks, had not yet founded Marseille, which was ancient Massilia on the Mediterranean coast of France, was initially a Phoenician settlement, which the Phocians are believed to have taken and founded their own colony there. In 750 BC, the earliest surviving Greek poets had not even begun to write. Yet by the time of Herodotus, 300 years later, Athens would begin to represent the new center of Western civilization. The Ionians of Athens, at one time under tribute 
evidently, to the Assyrians or perhaps to the Persians, did not give rise to the classical period of the Greeks until after the Persian Wars, during the time that Pericles led the rebuilding of the city from around 460 AD. So, so would um, the tribe of Naphtali, they'd be gone forever, right? I mean, well, not forever, but I mean, they were gone now. And when it was retaken, it would have been repopulated by other Israelites. Well, well right. From the time of Jeroboam II, it would have been... Um, it would have been retaken, but let me see. It, it's Tiglath Pileser. I'm sorry. It's Tiglath Pileser who first took Naphtali captive, beginning the deportations. And I'm about to get to that. It, it, we can't confuse him with Adad Narari III, who was before Jeroboam II, and he only put the Israelites under tribute, where oh. after the time of Jeroboam II, Tiglath-Pileser actually began to deport the Israelites, probably in response to the acts of Jeroboam II and his recovery of those places. I was just going to say that places. maybe that's why they started deporting. If they could <laughs> retake it, uh, right. you know, they'd just say, okay, we're just going to deport you this time. Right. That That... I, I do believe that that is indeed the case. So, continuing, and after our digression, continuing from the same inscription of Tiglath Pileser III, after he does deport those Israelites and, and the land of Naphtali, as to Hanno of Gaza, who had fled before my army and run away to Egypt, I conquered the town of Gaza, his personal property, his images. So he was evidently an idolater because the Israelites had turned to paganism. And I placed the images of my gods and my royal image in his own palace. Now, we see the Caesars in Rome doing that same thing in the first century AD. Go, and, and that was always a point of contention with the Judeans in Jerusalem, right? Because Nero and, and the, the Tiberius, they wanted to put their images in the temple, like they put their images in all the temples of the subject people. The Romans, the traditions of the Romans, were only a continuation of the ancient pagan traditions of Mesopotamia. Western culture came from Palestine, Israel, the Levant, and, and, and the nations of Mesopotamia. That's not a coincidence that the Assyrians were doing this 800 years before the Romans were doing the same thing. He declared those images and declared them to be, thenceforward, the gods of their country. I imposed upon them tribute. Now, another thing the Romans started to do was to force the subject nations to worship their gods, right? And, and the Catholic Church and the Jesuits did the same thing. <laughs> 2,000 years later, the, all these heathen peoples 
these blacks and, and these brown and yellow people and red people who should not even be Christians. But that's the attitude of the Catholic Church is also the attitude of these ancient pagan Assyrians and, and the ancient pagan Romans. Okay, that's another digression. As for Menahem, I overwhelmed him like a snowstorm, and he fled like a bird, alone. Then there's a questionable reading there, and bowed to my feet. I returned him to his place, probably because he decided to subject himself, and imposed tribute upon him, gold, silver, linen, garments, and multicolored trimmings. Great, and there's fragments here, there's missing pieces. I received from him Israel, or literally Omri land, right? Because Israel doesn't appear in these, as a word doesn't appear in these later inscriptions. Omri land, or Bit Humria, all its inhabitants and their possessions, I led to Assyria. They overthrew their king Pekah. And I placed Hosea as king over them. I received from them 10 talents of gold, 1,000 talents of silver as their tribute, and brought them to Assyria. Now, that's Tiglath Pileser III. That's not the taking of Samaria. So which Israelites he brought in, into Assyria, it seems like a considerable number, but we can't say that he took all of Israel at this time because Israel is still in Samaria. So, here in the analysis of Tiglath Pileser III, we witnessed the beginnings of the deportations of the Israelites to the cities of Assyria. The information in this ancient Assyrian inscription concerning Galsa, Abel Akka, and Naphtali, the beginnings of the deportations of the Israelites, and the events surrounding the kings Pekah and Hosea, is very much in agreement with the account from 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 29 and 30. I'm not going to, well, I am going to read it here, I'm sorry. Even though it's from a somewhat different point of view, a different perspective, in that place it says, in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took Ejan and Abel-Beth-Makkah, the Abel-Akka of the Assyrian inscriptions, right? And Janoa and Kadesh, and Hazor, and Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. The end of that word appearing in the Assyrian inscription. And carried them captive to Assyria. And Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and smote him, and slew him, and reigned in his stead. In the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, who was the king of Judah. So the Assyrian, the Assyrian inscription fully corroborates the Israelite record in 2 Kings chapter 15. And these people are being deported to the north into places where people who are called 
Sake and Scythians and Chimerians later appear. And none of them were black. They were all white. If the result is an innumerable multitude of white people, then the Israelites must have been white. It's crazy to think that they were black, that there were black people living all around Anatolia and the black and Caspian seas at this time. History just doesn't support that. It's ridiculous to even think that that would be possible. And you can so. even see some of the pictures of the inscriptions. It's clearly um, white people bowing to the uh, Assyrian masters or kings, right? Right. I, I will have um, the Lachish relief. I'll have elements of the Lachish re relief posted with this presentation when I post the notes. As long as I remember to do it, I'm sorry. A lot of times I say that and I forget because I may not post these notes until Saturday, right? But if, if anybody reminds me, I'll definitely post it, if in case I forget. Sometimes I, go, I find items that I already have on my desktop folder, and I'll go in, and, and I'll realize I should have posted it, and weeks later I finally post it, because I don't delete the files from my desktop folder until I do get them posted. Except right now my desktop folder is a couple of hundred thousand files, so... <laughs> okay, here in the annals of Tiglath-Pileser, we saw the beginnings of the deportations of the Israelites. And, and note that the Assyrian inscription also details the custom of an imperial power imposing its own gods on the subjected people, which is evident here in this inscription. It is practically the same custom which Imperial Rome had later followed in placing the images of their emperor in the temples of subject peoples and expecting those peoples to sacrifice to those images, to worship those images. And that's the same custom which the medieval Catholic Church began, which the Protestant churches have continued, enforcing their own corrupted forms of Christianity onto the world's alien peoples. Today, American imperialism also imposes its own gods on the alien peoples of the world. And therefore, they all wear Levi's. They eat at McDonald's, and they enforce laws forbidding anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. Every Holocaust museum represents the Jews imposing their gods, which to the Jew, their only god is the Jew, upon the world's alien peoples. It's the same concept. We're suffering today under these Jew bastards that the Assyrian pagans imposed on the people they conquered. And if you don't believe me, you better go study ancient history because that's what's going on in the world today. Every Holocaust museum is a Jewish shrine, a Jewish temple, which the people in the land where that museum is are forced to worship the Jew. And I've probably digressed enough in that respect. <laughs> From an inscription of Sargon II, 
who ruled Assyria from 721 to 705 BC. We read, property of Sargon, king of Assyria, conqueror of Samaria, and of the entire country of Israel. And the Assyrian version says, Bit Humria, or House of Amri, who despoiled Ashdod and Shinuti, who caught the Greeks who live on islands in the sea, like fish. He caught the Greeks like fish, who exterminated Kasku, Altabali, and Kalikia, or Hilaku, who chased away Midas, king of Musku, who defeated Musur in Rapihu, who declared Hanno, king of Gaza, as booty, who subdued the seven kings of the country Yah, a district in Cyprus. Yah-Ad-Nana is the name for Cyprus. And that Yah probably originated with Yahweh, the God of Israel. That would be my guess. I couldn't prove it because there is no written narrative history of Cyprus at this time, right? A district in Cyprus who dwell on an island in the sea at a distance of a seven days journey. And that's from ancient Near Eastern texts, page 284. And here we see Assyria not only once again conquering the Levant, but also extending its reach far into Anatolia. This Midas, who is mentioned here, is not the famous Midas of Greek legend, who was about 100 years later, and the king of Phrygia. Rather, this name seems to have been popular in Anatolia. However, the Tabali and Musku can certainly be associated with the Jepethi tribes of Tubal and Meshach of Scripture. So these Musky lived on the Black Sea, which is where Herodotus said also that the Tibarni, as he called them, and Moski had lived. Tubal and Meshech are listed in Genesis chapter 10 and mentioned in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And at that time, they dwelt on the coast of the Black Sea. They were evidently pushed north across the Caucasus by the, by the Scythians, the Israelites, after they were settled in that region. Calicia and that's and where you Cyprus. get um, Moscow from, right? Yes, I believe that is where Moscow comes from. And also a, a, another city in Russia that's named for Tubal. I've written about it, but at this moment, I really can't remember its exact name. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, anyway, Calicia and Cyprus at this time were populated with Phoenicians. The people were Phoenician. That could be established in many other Greek histories. I don't have the citations here, but I've also written about that in the historical essays at Christogenia. From one other quite fragmented inscription of Sargon II, at the beginning of my royal rule, and then there's an ellipsis, and it says, the town of the Samarians I besieged, conquered for the God, and then there's another space, who let me achieve this, my triumph, 
perhaps that space was occupied by the word Marduk. Marduk was the um, head of the Assyrian religious pantheon, the high god of the Assyrians. And it says, I led away as prisoners 27,290 inhabitants of it, meaning Samaria, and equipped from among them soldiers to man, 50 chariots for my royal corpse. The town I rebuilt better than it was before and settled therein people from countries which I myself had conquered. I placed an officer of mine as governor over them and imposed upon them tribute as is customary for Assyrian citizens. And that's found in ancient Near Eastern texts, page 284. <coughs> I'm sorry. From yet another inscription, witnessing the same events, I besieged and conquered Samaria, led away as booty, 27,290 inhabitants of it. Now, that's from only one city in Israel, which is a, a large city, the capital city, but it's still only one city where we've already read that many other Israelites in other places had also been taken captive. And we're not even reading all of those inscriptions here. There are others which discussed earlier captivities of Israel. I formed from among them a contingent of 50 chariots and made remaining inhabitants assume their social positions. I installed over them an officer of mine and imposed upon them the tribute of the former king. So Sargon II takes Samaria. He takes over 27,000 people captive. He resettles them elsewhere in the empire. And we're told where they are resettled. And he forms a corps from them so that he could use them as soldiers of 50 chariots. And, and that would include more than 50 men, but I'm not sure how many men, according to the organization of the Assyrian army, it could be 100 or more to supply and operate 50 chariots. So what this is a reflection of is the fact that every ancient empire becomes an empire and becomes more and more powerful by taking conscripts of soldiers from the conquered territories, forcing them into military service and using them elsewhere, never in the places where they were conquered. And the Romans did that same thing. Every empire does that same thing. As it conquers nations, it, it, it doesn't have to be more powerful than every nation, every other nation combined. It only has to be a little more powerful than its neighbors. And once it conquers its neighbors, it adds their power to their own and grows and, and multiplies exponentially in that way. So that, that's the way it's always been done. That's why the kingdoms that become emperors are described as beasts, because that's what they become. And, and every empire recorded in history had followed suit. So 
even conquered Israelites became soldiers to be used against other nations which the Assyrians had conquered or had designs to conquer. The primary biblical record of this event, the taking of Samaria, is found in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. And it says, in the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, began Hosea, the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his servant and gave him presents. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, So being the Assyrian name for the king of Egypt at that time, the pharaoh of that time, and brought no present to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Halah and in Habor by the river Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. These later became the innumerable multitude of the ten tribes beyond Euphrates about which Josephus had spoken. This is that. So were they carried away into different parts, like um, each invasion by Assyria uh, at different decades where we scattered all over Assyria and Medes? Absolutely. And, and that's where we see um, when, when Cyrus, the king of Persia, 200 years after this, almost, right? Probably about 530 BC. Wanted to conquer the Scythians so that he could make a route to Greece. He actually died, and his successors continued. Darius continued the campaign and was more successful. But Cyrus the Great died fighting with the Scythians, which were on the other side of the Araxes River in the northern portion of what was known as Media. And the other side of the Araxes River is getting into what became known as Armenia. So that Araxes River is one place where these um, children of Israel were settled in the cities of the Medes, and they started to migrate across that river and ultimately crossed the, through the Caucasus Mountains. They had plenty of time to do that in the 200 years between this event and the time of Cyrus the Great. And these became the innumerable multitude of the 10 tribes about which Josephus had spoken. But Israelites, it could be proven, and, and also with great help from the pages of Josephus, that the Parthians were originally Israelites, and they were some of the other Assyrian captives who were settled in the cities of the Medes, bordering the Caspian Sea. And, and Israelites were resettled as they were taken out of Palestine, were resettled along all of the borderlands 
of the Assyrian Empire in the north, and that's why the Sake or Scythians are found in 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 Caspiana, the Caspian Sea region, in in the Araxes River region, on the Black Sea, and on the other side of the Caspian Sea, in in Sogdiana and Bactria, and the Amurgian Scythians, who we had mentioned earlier, were from that area, east of the Caspian Sea. So, so these Israelites had, had been settled on all the borderlands to create buffer states subservient to Assyria, by which they could ultimately expand it, hoped to expand their frontiers. But the truth is that the Scythians settled in the cities of the Medes and, and along the Black Sea, they had ultimately joined with the Persians, who were subject to the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, who were subject to the Assyrians, and the three groups joined together and destroyed the cities of the Assyrians in 612 BC, or thereabouts. So, Tiglath-Pileser had, had been the last notable king of Assyria, and he died in 633 BC, and he ruled for, for a long time, for almost 40 years. And after that, there was a series of minor kings and usurpers, and the Assyrian Empire began to fall apart. There was no strong successor to Tiglath-Pileser. I'm, I'm sorry, to Ashurbanipal. I got that wrong. It's Ashurbanipal. And I mentioned him earlier as the last notable Assyrian king. Well, he had no strong successor, so there were a, a, a series of pretenders, and Assyria fell apart, and those subject nations, the Kimaroi or Cymri, and the Persians and Babylonians were able to destroy all of the cities of Nineveh right at 612 BC or thereabouts. And that's about when Homer and the Greek epic poets had begun writing. And after that, the Chimerians had crossed Anatolia. They destroyed much of um, Phrygia. And they looted and pillaged the cities of the Lydians and crossed the Bosporus and, and settled in the Crimea. And, and dispersed on the Hungarian plains, where they became known as Galatahi, and later as Germans. In part, there and, were and other that would ways. also explain how later on there was kind of civil war, right, where one group on one side would move in to Europe, and then another scattered on the east would come in, perhaps a century or two later, and and then they would fight each other, right? Right, there, absolutely. There was a long distance and a long time frame between them. Yes, and and that process took over a thousand years. It wasn't really settled until after the Slavic invasions, that maybe 1500 years un until the coming of groups like the Magyars in, in 900 AD into Europe. It, it was a long, arduous process. And some of those groups are Slavic and some of those groups are, are, are Scythian Israelites. Well, anyway, these, uh, these people taken out of Samaria, and, and there may have been other earlier groups settled with them, they became the innumerable multitude of the ten tribes about which Josephus had written in the first century in Antiquities. 
And, and we'll get into that passage in more detail later in the series. That the Assyrians brought in people from other places which they had conquered and settled them in Samaria, as the inscription states, is attested in 2 Kings book chapter 17, verse 24. And, and the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cuthah and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvam and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. So the inscriptions in the Bible, yet, you know, when the people who wrote this Bible, what way back after these, and, and Kings and Chronicles aren't really the original chronicles of the kings, that they were, um, and they could be demonstrated that they were condensed and, and redacted in places and, and summarized later on to become the books that we know as Kings and Chronicles. But all of that was definitely formed by the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, by about 450 B.C. So when these Chronicles were recorded in 450 up to, let me say, up to 450 BC. There was no way that the people who did this would realize that 2,500 years later, or, or I should say 2,300 years later, men would come and dig holes in the dirt, in the ground, and find Assyrian inscriptions, which basically give us corroboration, proof that these chronicles are actually true. No way. But it happened. And we have these Assyrian inscriptions today, which prove that it happened. It all happened just the way it was written in the Bible. And we know where these people went. And both the names and the circumstances prove that we know where these people went that these are the forerunners of the later Germanic tribes. The account in 2 Kings chapter 17 is recapitulated in part in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it, even in the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel into Assyria and put them in Halah and Habor by the river Gozan and in the cities of the Medes, because they obeyed not the voice of Yahweh their God, but transgressed his covenant, all that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded and would not hear them nor do them. Now, later in the cities of the Medes, according to Herodotus, the Medes were the first people who were ever called Arians. And we see that word Arian in the East applied to certain of the Scythians that were settled to the east of Assyria. It became Iran later in history. And I'm not saying that the people in Iran today are Aryans. Today they're all Arab bastards. But they used to be white Aryans. The word Aryan, Herodotus said, 
first applied to people in media. And another phenomenon comes from ancient media, and that's the magi. The magi, according to Herodotus, were a priesthood in media. They weren't necessarily Medes. The magi knew of the coming of the Christ child that only Israelites would know from the prophets. So Levitical priests? Yes. I believe they must have been. The Magi must have been Levitical priests. Maybe they took others into that their cult, or, or whatever you want to call it, and after a few hundred years of history, right? But initially they must have been Levitical priests and the Magi who came to Bethlehem 700 years later, almost 800 years later, must have descended from those Levitical priests who would have had that knowledge and prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. In 2 Kings, the Assyrian king who took Samaria, who did these things, is called Shalmaneser, while in the Assyrian inscriptions, he is Sargon II. And apparently, Shalmaneser V, who ruled Assyria until 722 BC, had initiated the siege of Samaria, but Sargon II ascended the throne during its progress. Samaria was besieged three years. And he completed it, and he took credit for it. From another inscription of Sargon II, from the first year of his rule as king, Yamani, is that word Yah again, Yamani from Ashdod, afraid of my armed force, left his wife and children and fled to the frontier of Musru, which belongs to Maluha. And that, that describes an area in Ethiopia below Egypt, Musru being the Assyrian equivalent to the Hebrew Mitzraim, which describes Egypt, right? And hid there like a thief. I installed an officer of mine as governor over his entire large country and its prosperous inhabitants, aggrandizing again the territory belonging to Asher, the king of the gods, Asher being the eponymous ancestor of the Assyrians, even in scripture in Genesis chapter 10. The terror-inspiring glamour of Asher, my lord, overpowered. However, the king of Maluha, and he threw him, Yamani, in fetters on hands and feet and sent him to me, to Assyria. I conquered and sacked the towns of Shinutu and Samaria and all Israel, or Amri land, bit Humria. I caught like a fish the Greek Ionians who live on islands amidst the Western Sea. Now, later in the rule of Sargon, the first year after it was first taken and not recorded in the Bible, was another revolt at Samaria, which was again put down forcibly by the Assyrians. And that revolt must have been led by the people planted there by the Assyrians and, and not by Israelites because they were all removed. From another inscription of Sargon II, from the fifth year of his rule as king of Assyria, 
That would be about 717, 716 BC. Upon a trust-inspiring oracle given by Asher, I crushed the towns of Tamud, Ibadiri, Marsimanu, and Hayapa, the Arabs who live far away in the desert and who know neither overseers nor officials, who had not yet brought their tribute to any king. I deported their survivors and settled them in Samaria. And it is no wonder that the Judahites who returned from Babylon would later despise the Samaritans. However, the scripture also demonstrates that a significant number of Israelites who managed to escape captivity remained in Samaria. And history attests that a significant number of the people brought into Samaria by the Assyrians were Adamic people from elsewhere in Mesopotamia and the adjoining lands. In other words, they would all be apparently white. Even these Arabs who were in the desert would probably have been apparently white at this time. The browning of Arabia really didn't begin to start until they started importing and mingling with Negro slaves from sub-Saharan Africa in the Islamic period. That really didn't, there's no records that I've ever seen of that intermingling with black slaves from Africa until the Islamic period. I'm not saying it couldn't have happened earlier, but that is when it began to happen on a large scale. There were Nubians who had invaded Ethiopia and Egypt and already turned them brown. <laughs> Probably by the time of the prophet Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, that had already happened in the 7th century BC. So, or right around this time that we're in now, Ethiopia and Egypt are being turned brown by Nubians because we're here in the 7th century BC, right? It is clear that there were also many Canaanites and other so-called Arabs, which is, at that time, it can designate people of mixed tribes regardless of their nature or race. And it's possible that the Romans, the Assyrians were only using it as a geographical term like the Romans later used it. The translator didn't really specify and probably didn't really know. I don't think there were a people called Arabs at this time. Arab was simply a general term that described the land that became known as Arabia because a bunch of tribes that lived there had all intermingled with one another both Canaanites and Semites and Hamites, and that doesn't mean that they weren't apparently white. They certainly would have been apparently white, the Canaanites not being purely white. It's um, fascinating that the Assyrians deified their uh, patriarch, right, uh, Asher, that they now saw him as a god. <laughs> yes, they did, and perhaps that was the ellipsis in the earlier inscriptions but the head of the Assyrian, I thought Marduk, I'm sure Marduk at one time was the chief god of the Assyrians. Um, Marduk was the chief god of the Persians who followed. But the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, they all shared many aspects, if not all, 
at least many aspects of the same re- pagan religion. That they were all Shemites as well, right? So all kind of semi-related. Yes, absolutely. Well, the Hamites weren't Shemites. There were a, a, a significant number of Hamite tribes in Mesopotamia. But yes, the, the um, Babylonians of later history of the Neo-Babylonian Empire were Chaldeans. They were Casti. And it could be established that they, the Kassites had a Shemitic origin from northern Mesopotamia or northern Syria. I'm trying to see where I actually had left off here. The Assyrian king, Esarhaddon, he followed Sargon II. He ruled from 680 to 669 BC. He was also often occupied with seditions against the empire in Tyre, Sidon, and the lands of former Israel. And he was still importing aliens into Samaria. And therefore, we see the following in Ezra chapter 4. Then they, meaning certain of the Samaritans, came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Now Zerubbabel is a Judahite returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. Of course, the Judahites rejected the proposal and dealt with much political strife on account of it. And this actually occurred in the time of Cambyses, the king of Persia. In one of the inscriptions cited earlier, Sargon II boasted of being the conqueror of Samaria. In one of his later inscriptions, he boasted of himself as the subduer of the country of Judah, which is far away, the uprooter of Hamath, the rule of which Yah Bidi he captured personally. And we see that Yah, Yah Bidi, we see that Yah prefix again, which is common in the Hebrew Old Testament in all of the names like Joash, Jehoram, um, Jehoshaphat, they all begin with that same Yah prefix. For some reason in the Bible, it's always transliterated as a J-E-H or a J-O-H. In inscriptions, it's usually an I-A, which reflects the sound and not necessarily the alphabet characters. So, so should um, Jeremiah even be, even be Yahremiah? Yes, I believe it means hearer of Yahweh, if I'm not mistaken, or he who hears Yahweh or something like that. I'm sorry, no, Jeremiah, the end of his name is Yahweh, right? All it's, right. This is whom Yahweh has appointed is what it means, so I'm confusing it. With, with another name. Yeah, that Yerem is is the word that means appointed. But all of the other names that begin in J-E-H or in J-O-H, they begin in the first half of the word Yahweh, Yah. And I believe even Joash does also, which I'm about to check. 
Joash, given by Yahweh, is what it means. So that J-O. I, I mean, in, in Hebrew, perhaps the word would be spelled with more letters than the five we see in Joash, right? That, that's the way the King James translators chose to represent the name. Okay, I have to figure out where I am again. Yalbidi. After Sargon II, the next king, a few short years later, was Sennacherib, or Sennacherib. He's, his name is often pronounced. Sennacherib, it was Sennacherib who conquered Judah. So Sargon II evidently did something in Judah. He, sub Judah. he subdued it. He may have put it under tribute. But Sen Sennacherib conquered Judah. And the records insist that he had at least several hundred thousand troops with him when he besieged Jerusalem. Sargon must have considered it no small feat to be subduer of Judah or uprooter of Hamath or conqueror of Samaria, as we have seen him boast in his inscription cited here. These are large and powerful cities, and we have seen in the Syrian inscriptions of Shalmaneser III, who ruled Assyria from 858 to 824 BC, that Ahab was able to lend 10,000 foot soldiers to a confederacy which fought against that king. And Hamath also lent 10,000 foot soldiers to that same cause. The scripture did not even mention Ahab's loan of such a large army to such a cause. And therefore, by the writers of scripture, it could not have been considered a significant act. Likewise, Hamath, nearly 120 miles north of Damascus, was a vassal state to Israel for most of the history of Israel, which is evident in several places in scripture. The tenor of the Assyrian inscriptions certainly does help to prove that Israel was every bit the great nation-state that the Bible purports it to have been. The narrative of the Assyrian inscriptions certainly helps to prove that the Bible is an important and historically accurate book. Once you read these inscriptions, that cannot be denied. While most all of the people of the tribes of ancient Israel were taken destroyed or taken captive by the Assyrians, Judah would suffer the same fate. In 2 Kings chapter 18, we have an account of the Assyrian captivity of much of Judah. And it says, now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended, return from me, that that which thou puttest on me I will bear. That's Hezekiah, Hezekiah saying, okay, what tribute do you want to leave me and leave me alone? And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, that's 60 pounds per talent at least, and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasures of the king's house. 
At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of Yahweh and from the pillars which Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. While the Assyrians did indeed take and destroy 46 fenced cities of Judah, Lachish was not destroyed by the Assyrians. Sennacherib had laid a siege against Lachish, which is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 9. But, as it is evident in the passage from 2 Kings chapter 18, and also from Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, the Assyrians acquired control of Lachish and used it as a base of operations for their conquest of the rest of Judah. That's why the Assyrian reliefs or depictions that were created back in Assyria of the booty, loot, slaves that they had gotten from the conquest of Judah. That's why that relief is called the Lachish relief, because it depicts things that the Assyrians had done while Lachish was their base of operations for the siege of Judah. And that is in the British Museum today, that the English actually preserved what was left of it because it's damaged and incomplete. But it was a huge relief. It took up a large wall and they moved it to the British Museum. And, and the, the 19th century English did a lot of fascinating preservation of, of these relics from ancient Assyria. They really did. It is also evident in 2 Kings chapter 19 that the Assyrians departed from Lachish, leaving the city intact. Lachish was besieged again over a hundred years later by the Babylonians in the time of Jeremiah. And we will read a short citation from Jeremiah chapter 34 from verse 7. When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, against Lachish and against Azekah, for these defense cities remained of the cities of Judah. The cities of Lachish and Azekah are mentioned again in the Persian period in Nehemiah chapter 11, where from the context of that chapter, it seems that Lachish was not populated, but rather it was repopulated with Judahites in Nehemiah 11. So the Babylonians must have taken all of the inhabitants of Lachish into captivity along with the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. In order to gain some insight into the historicity of the accounts of the taking of Judah and the siege of Jerusalem by both the Babylonians and the Assyrians, we should first examine the later Lachish Ostraca. The provenance of the Lachish Ostraca, sometimes known as the Lachish letters, are well known. Their authenticity is not questioned. They were discovered in the ruins of modern Tel Ed Duir in southern Palestine from 1935 to 1938. These findings help to establish that the narrative concerning the history of Lachish as it is presented by the Bible is indeed accurate. 
And the Israelite worshipers of Yahweh dwelt there up to the time of the Babylonian sieges upon the remnants of Judah, which were left by the Assyrians. The following is the text of the Lachish Ostraca from ancient Near Eastern texts, pages 321 and 322. And we didn't include all of the Ostraca but the significant ones, in order to show the cultural context of the time, was indeed exactly as it is described in the scriptures. So, Ostraca II, and, and Ostraca, I should say Ostrakan is the singular of Ostraca. Ostraca are, um, that they're clay pieces. They're never whole. They're never made as ostraca. Ostraca are pieces of broken vessels that were reused in order to send notes. So you would scratch a note into a piece of broken pottery. If you break a piece of pottery, you'll save it so that someday you could scratch a note into it. So you put it in a pile. When you need something to scratch a note into, because they didn't have paper. It was hard to make paper. You had to make your own paper from papyrus in those days. So you just grab the piece of this broken pottery, scratched a note into it, and sent it to whoever you needed to. So, Astrakhan number two. To my lord, Yeash, may Yahweh cause my lord to hear tidings of peace this very day. This very day, who is thy servant but a dog, that my lord has remembered his servant. May Yahweh afflict those who report an evil rumor about which thou art not informed. Now, some sources claim this Yeash is King Joash of Judah, but he was much too early for the circumstances described in the inscriptions, and the inscriptions also prove that claim to be wrong. This Joash must have been an officer who lived much later, in between the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities of Judah. So, from Astrakhan 3, thy servant, Hosea, has sent to inform my lord, Yeash. So, Hosea is writing this, right? May Yahweh cause my lord to hear tidings of peace. And now thou hast sent a letter, but my lord did not enlighten thy servant concerning the letter which thou did send to thy servant yesterday evening. Though the heart of thy servant has been sick, since thou did write to thy servant, and as for what my Lord said, dost thou not understand? Call a scribe. In other words, call a scribe. If you don't get what I'm saying, the scribe will figure it out for you, right? As Yahweh lives, no one has ever undertaken to talk, call a scribe for me. And as for any scribe who might have come to me, truly I did not call him, nor would I give him anything at all for him, meaning I would not pay him. So nobody would talk to the king like that. So this Yeash was a superior to Hosea, but he wasn't the king, right? And it has been reported to thy servant, saying, The commander of the host, Coniah, son of Elnathan, has come down in order to go into Egypt, and unto Hodaviah, the son of Ahijah, and his men he has sent to obtain from him. As for the letter of Tobiah, and we see that Yah in a lot of these names, right? Servant of the king, which came to Shalem, son of Jadua, 
through the prophet, saying, Beware, thy servant has sent it to my Lord. Now from Ostrakhan 4. May Yahweh cause my Lord to hear this very day tidings of good. And now, according to everything that my Lord has written, so has thy servant done. I have written on the door according to all that my Lord has written to me. And with respect to what my Lord has written about the matter of Beth Harifid, there is no one there. So an, a city is empty, right? A town is empty. And as for Shemekiah, Shemaiah has taken him and brought him up to the city. And as for thy servant, I am not sending anyone there today, but I will send tomorrow morning. And let my Lord know that we are watching for the signals of Lachish according to all the indications which my Lord has given, for we cannot see Azekah. In other words, they were sending off some kind of smoke signals or some kind of maybe light beacons at night or whatever, candles, whatever. They were sending signals from one town to another in order to convey certain information, probably sending signals if they spotted Babylonian armies or things like that, right? So, Lachish Ostrakhan number five. May Yahweh cause my Lord to hear tidings of peace and good this very day. Who is thy servant but a dog that thou hast sent unto thy servant the letters? Now thy servant has returned the letters to my Lord. And that's a statement of humility, right? Who is thy servant but a dog? In other words, I really, you're a great man. I really don't deserve your recognition, right? May Yahweh cause thee to see how thy servant can benefit or injure the king. So there we learn that this could not be King Joash, right? Because of, of this wording. And then from Lachish, Ostrakhan 6. To my lord Yeash, may Yahweh cause my lord to see this season in good health. Who is thy servant but a dog that my Lord has sent the letter of the king? Again, this isn't the king himself. And the letters of the princes saying, pray, read them. And behold, the words of the princes are not good, but to weaken our hands and to slacken the hands of the men who are informed about them. And now, my Lord, wilt thou not write unto them, saying, why do you do this even in Jerusalem? Behold, unto the king and unto his house are you doing this thing. And as Yahweh thy God lives truly, since thy servant read the letters, there has been no peace for thy servant. So things are coming to an end in Jerusalem, right? Things are going badly. Lakeish Astrakhan 8. <clears throat> May Yahweh cause my Lord to hear tidings of good this very day. The Lord has humbled me before thee. Nedabiah has fled to the mountains. Truly, I lie not. Let my Lord send thither. And nine, Lakish Ostrakhan nine. May Yahweh cause my Lord to hear tidings of peace. Let him send 15, and there's some gaps in the text, so we really don't know what it refers to. Return word to thy servant through Shelemiah, telling us what we shall do tomorrow. And finally, Ostrakhan 13, they did not wish to do any work. Now, that might sound like niggers, but that's the first thing I've ever read from ancient Israel that might sound like niggers. They did not wish to do any work. And Shemekiah, and it trails off, there's nothing left to it. So, 
In addition to demonstrating the historicity of the biblical accounts, the Lachish Ostrica show that the attitudes concerning religion reflected in the Bible at that very time had also actually existed among the people. It wasn't priests making this stuff up, right? So was that during the siege of um, Jerusalem? And that's the attitudes of the people praying to Yahweh and hoping that he'll get them out of it? Well, well, I believe this is in anticipation of the siege of Jerusalem, yes. They're anticipating it. They kind of know it's coming, and they're watching for it. And they're watching the signals from one town to another in order to get word of it, in order to try to defend against it. And it shows you that the common people uh, would tend to have more faith in Yahweh uh, than the kings who always tended to be arrogant and right well right it shows you that common people in in Lachish had the same religious beliefs and, and more faith in God a real faith in God which is reflected in the Hebrew scriptures that that actually did belong to the common people even after the Assyrian captivities they continued to have that faith you know, a lot of people, when things go bad, they give up on their God. They are the hell with him. I'm going to drink beer and gamble. <laughs> what, what, whatever. They give up on their God. Well, no, these people continued in that faith. We still have a ways to go, so we're going to do our best to get there in due time. Archaeologists generally date the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib to about 701 BC. <clears throat> there are a lot of problems with dating in this period. The invasion of Judah began as early as 715 BC, but that is not necessarily when Jerusalem was first besieged. The following is from Isaiah chapter 36, and it's quite lengthy. Perhaps I'll try to shorten it as I read it. I've already shortened it somewhat. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. Now Hezekiah is esteemed to begin his rule around 730, 729, 728 BC, right in there, right? So the 14th year would be perhaps about 715 that this started, right? <clears throat> And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem. He's using Lachish as the base of his operations. To Jerusalem under King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house of Anshibna the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, <clears throat> What confidence is this wherein thou trusts? I say, Sayest thou, but they are vain words. I have counsel for strength for war, and strength for war. Now on whom do you trust that you have rebelled against me? Lo, thou trusteth in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, Lo, thou trusteth, meaning Hezekiah trusts, in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man leans, 
it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all that trust in him. But if thou wilt say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? Now, the, the, the Assyrian king is interpreting the removal of high places and altars throughout Judah and Jerusalem to removing them not because they are pagan idols, but because they belong to Yahweh, right? So the Assyrian king really doesn't understand the religion of Judah. He's kind of half understanding it, right? Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, ye shall worship before this altar? Now, therefore, give pledges, hostages, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee 2,000 horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. And, and I'm sorry, we're reading from scripture here, but these same attitudes are reflected in the Assyrian inscriptions. I'm confusing myself, right? To give... I will give thee 2,000 horses if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. In other words, <clears throat> if indeed Hezekiah could muster a cavalry troop of that size, the king of Assyria is challenging him. He's doubting it, right? How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And am I now come up with Yahweh against this land to destroy it? Am I now come up without Yahweh against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said unto me, go up against this land and destroy it. So the king of Assyria is boasting that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has told him to do that. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Judahite language and said, Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh, saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by a present and come out to me and eat ye every one of his vine and every one of his fig tree. And drink ye every one of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own. So the children of Judah are being deported one way or another. Whether the king of Assyria is, is um, successful and defeats them, or whether they submit themselves to him, they're still going to be taken away to a different land. That's the point that the Assyrians were at with Hezekiah. They had already deported all the people of those 46 fenced cities of Judah, right? Which we're probably still to get to. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Have any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? The Assyrians already conquered all of those places in spite of their gods.
Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand, that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand, out of my hand? And there he's actually challenging Yahweh, the God of Israel. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, saying, Answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, that was over the household, the steward of the king's house, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, and told him the words of Rabshakeh, the Assyrian officer, speaking in behalf of the Assyrian king. The outcome of the subsequent siege of Jerusalem was not quite what the Assyrians had expected, and they had failed to take the city. We'll see that from Scripture shortly. From so the inscriptions, and challenging um, the people of Jerusalem, yes, uh, essentially. Yes, absolutely. And, and from the inscriptions of Sennacherib three, who ruled Assyria from 704 to 681 B.C.? And I say inscriptions because there are two ancient and important inscriptions which contain what are referred to as the Annals of Sennacherib. The more famous is called the Taylor Prism, and there is another called the Oriental Institute Prism, and they basically say the same thing, so I'm, so I'm only going to read them once, right? As to Hezekiah, the Judahite, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and to the countless small villages in their vicinity, and conquered them by means of well-stamped earth ramps and battering rams brought thus near to the walls, combined with the attack by foot soldiers using mines, breaches, as well as sapper work, probably like a wicker work of protection against missiles and things. That's what I'm guessing. I drove out of them. <clears throat> 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small, cattle beyond counting, and considered them booty. Himself, meaning Hezekiah, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, <clears throat> like a bird in a cage. Now that's a boast, but the king of Assyria is describing what had befell him in the best possible terms, where he had actually suffered a great loss. I surrounded him with earthwork in order to molest those who were leaving his city's gate. His towns, which I had plundered, I took away from his country and gave them over to Metinti, king of Ashdod, Paddy, king of Ekron, and Silibel, king of Gaza. And this supports the earlier contention in that the Philistines had, had assisted the Assyrians in this campaign. I didn't make that contention here. I made it in the presentations that I had copied this text from. This was all, as I said at the beginning, presented earlier, several years ago at Christagenia. But the... When one king helps an emperor against another local king, he's always rewarded 
to some degree or another. It, it's sort of like a, an enticement to support the empire. So here, these surrounding kings of Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod had been rewarded by the Assyrians. They must have helped in the siege against Jerusalem and, and the cities of Judah. Thus, I reduced his country, meaning Hezekiah's, but I still increased the tribute and the Catru presence, that word Catru being obscure, due to me as his overlord, which I imposed later upon him beyond the former tribute to be delivered annually. Hezekiah himself, whom the terror-inspiring splendor of my lordship had overwhelmed, and whose irregular and elite troops which he had brought into Jerusalem, his royal residence in order to strengthen it, had deserted him, did send me away later to Nineveh, my lordly city, together with 30 talents of gold, 800 talents of silver, precious stones, antimony, large cuts of red stone, couches inlaid with ivory, nimedu chairs inlaid with ivory, elephant hides, ebony wood, boxwoods, and all kinds of valuable treasures, his own daughters, concubines, male and female musicians, in order to deliver the tribute and to do obeisance as a slave, he sent his personal messenger. And that's from Ancient Near Eastern Texts, page 288. In the Assyrian version, where it is boasted that Hezekiah was left locked up in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage, that is political spin, so that Sennacherib could depict himself in the best possible light. But the version recorded by Isaiah reads quite differently from verse 33 of that same chapter of Isaiah from which we've already cited. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into the city, saith Yahweh. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, and for David my servant's sake. Then the angel of Yahweh went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians, a hundred and fourscore and five thousand, a hundred and eighty-five thousand men. When they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass, and this actually happened many years later, perhaps a decade or so later, I believe. Ten years later, at least ten years later. And it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adremelech and Sharazar, his sons, smote him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. It may have been, thinking about this, 20 years later, because Esar Haddan, I believe, came, became king in 680 B.C. The siege of Jerusalem was sometime around 700 B.C. So the Assyrians had already taken a few hundred thousand people of Judah into captivity, but they were prevented from taking Jerusalem. 
For that reason, because the population of Jerusalem was quite large, the captives of Judah in Assyria would not be remembered as the term two tribes continued to be used in reference to those who remained in Jerusalem, who spread back into the Judean countryside before they were finally taken captive by the Babylonians just over a hundred years later. Now, finally, there are also records, and, and let me say that very little from Babylon survived, survived the sands of time, right? We have very comparatively very few inscriptions, historical inscriptions from ancient Babylon as compared to the, the great number of historical inscriptions that we have from ancient Assyria. So finally, there are also records establishing portions of the biblical history of the Babylonian deportations, which were found in Babylonian inscriptions. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, we read, Jehoiachin was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. So an eight-year-old child certainly can sin, right? And when the year was expired, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the goodly vessels of the house of Yahweh and made Zedekiah his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem. And now from ancient Near Eastern texts, page 308, from Jehoiachin's presence in captivity in Babylon, among other things, there it is what we have proof of this. And this is from a section of historical documents from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II, who was the king of Babylon at this time. And we see proof of Jehoiachin's presence in captivity in Babylon. It is explained there in ancient Near Eastern texts that these inscriptions are from administrative documents found in Babylon in which some information concerning the fate of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, can be gathered. These texts are said to date from the 10th to the 35th year of Nebuchadnezzar II. And they list deliveries of oil for the subsistence of individuals who were either prisoners of war or who were otherwise dependent upon the royal household. The individuals are identified by name, profession, or nationality. Two tablets so far published, as of the time of ancient Near Eastern texts publication, also mention, besides Judeans, inhabitants of Ashkelon, Tyre, Byblos, Arvad, and even Egyptians, Medes, Persians, Lydians, and Greeks. So I'm not going to read all of this, but it's only about 10 lines that I have here anyway. It mentions a Shalamiamu, and it mentions 126 men from Tyre, and it mentions Zabiria the Lydian. And then it says that there was two and a half sela of oil apportioned to sons of the king of Judah, Yahudu, 
and four sila to eight men from Judah, Yahudah. And the only king of Judah who could have possibly been in imprisonment in Assyria at this time is this Jehoiachin, king of Judah, whom the Bible said was taken back to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar too. Then there was one and a half sila of oil for three carpenters from Arvad. One and a half sila each. For eight men from Byblos, one sila each. Three and a half sila of oil for Greeks, certain Greeks that were in the palace of the king. Whether they were prisoners or not, it's hard to determine. But in the Greek lyric poets, there is, which are from the 7th century BC or the 6th century BC, there is evidence, solid evidence, there are statements that there were Greek mercenaries among the forces of the Babylonians who besieged Jerusalem. And finally, Tensila to Yaku Ukinu, which seems to be the Babylonian transliteration of the Hebrew word from which we get Jehoiachin, right? The son of the king of Yakudu or Judah. And then two and a half sila for the five sons of the king of Judah through Cana. And that's the end of the relevant portion of the surviving Babylonian inscriptions from the palace of Nebuchadnezzar II that established that a king of Judah was being held captive there, just like the scripture informs us that Jehoiachin, as a young boy, was taken captive to Babylon. So he must have grown up and had sons in Babylon. And that's the end of our presentation. But we certainly see that, that these ancient Israelites were indeed all taken captive by the Assyrians, and we see where they went. And we can determine that the result of that was the appearance of these white tribes of Scythians, Chimerians, Saka, in these regions to which they were brought. And, and they appear throughout Persian history and, and throughout the Greek histories, where we know that they ultimately became what we can call now the Germanic peoples. And ultimately, these deportations, they saved our race, right? Because shortly afterwards, or at least a few centuries, that whole place would become Arabized. But um, our Germanic tribes who were, you know, on their own in Germany or, you know, Central Europe began to thrive shortly after, right? Absolutely. And, and they throve to the point where there were actually Germanic tribes who returned to Africa, who returned to the area, and, and who had suffered for it. That the, uh, I have in mind the Vandals, who, who had crossed from Italy into Carthage and, and attempted to establish themselves in Carthage. And, and within perhaps 100 years, they were overrun and, and Arabized and forced into Islam after they were defeated by the Byzantines and resubjected to Byzantium they were forced into Islam 
Yeah, well, I hope this was um, really helpful for people because um, most people just have no idea of all this mounting evidence, right? That um, it all collaborates with the Bible and it all shows you not only is the Bible completely true, but as you said, uh, these Israelites became the Germanic tribes. And if we're white, then so must have our ancestors been white, right? <laughs> well, right, absolutely. And, and if, if the result of these deportations were large numbers of white people in, in Central Asia and Anatolia, which can be established from later history, history and, and from the testimonies such as those of Josephus, that, then the Israelites must have been white. If the Greeks, like Strabo, who was from Cappadocia and who knew up close and personal, all the people of Syria, if he said there were no black Syrians, then the Israelites had to be white. It's the only logical conclusion. <laughs> and throughout Greek histories, even the people of Judah are identified as Syrians. Because from an outsider's perspective, they were Syrians. Just like those French Canadians, from the perspective of most Americans are just Canadians like all the other Canadians. Just like from an outsider's perspective, whether you're Welsh or, or Saxon, you're an Englishman, or a Breton at least. Okay, I guess that should be about it. This is almost three hours, not quite, maybe about 2.45. Yeah, yeah, so th this was a long program, but uh, a, a really important point, I hope. Well, yes, I presented this information, all of this information and more I had presented either in German Origins Part 1, which is where the first page or so came from, or in my commentary on a prophecy of, of, of Amos, which I presented in early 2013. So it's all there at Christoginia already. I, I really didn't add a lot of new material here, maybe a page or two, but basically it would be a lot easier for people to listen to one two hour and 45 minute presentation than to a whole series of 10 podcasts on Amos. I, I, I would still hope they go listen to Amos anyway be, after this because it, it, it'll give them a lot more detail and a lot more biblical perspective, but that's okay. It's all in one place now. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Bill. Thank you. And uh, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, our European people. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. And good night.